You're listening to the So What Podcast. For the modalist view to work, uh, you would have to do away with the clear presentation in Scripture of Jesus and the Father simultaneously. Uh, we find ourselves drifting into modalistic expression in our prayers. You know, we may begin by saying our Father in heaven, but you know, just a few lines into our prayer, we say, thank you for dying on the cross and saving us from our sins. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this first of a two-part episode, the crew will discuss Sibelius and modalism. Before we head over to our discussion, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. And you can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhatPodcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion. So today the topic is Sibelius and modalism. Why in the world would we pick such a guy and such a topic? Well, I know uh, when we were first starting to talk about the series, uh, The Gospel According to Heretics, uh, I uh, looked through the list and you had asked us to pick a couple topics that we'd leave the discussion on. And so uh, I saw Sibelius and modalism and uh, it kind of jumped out to me because I was raised in a uh, Pentecostal denomination. My my family comes from the Church of God, and so uh, growing up, I'd often heard about uh, the Jesus-only people, the, the United Pentecostals, and so I thought this was a good opportunity for me to dig in and, and do a little bit of research about a group of people that I'd often heard a lot about, but uh, truthfully didn't know much about at all. That, that's interesting that you bring up oneness Pentecostals in the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, early on in the conversation, I'm sure we'll, we'll round back to it. Uh, but when we think about oneness Pentecostalism, and specifically that denomination, the big divide that would come immediately to the minds of most listeners is the doctrinal difference between Orthodox Trinitarianism and the way that oneness Pentecostals understand the Godhead. Thus far in this series, we've had sort of an an introduction to heresy uh, with Dr. Wilhite. And the last two episodes have been on supersessionism, which was a discussion of how the Old and the New Covenants relate to each other. And the last episode was adoptionism, which was essentially a Christological discussion. Who is Jesus? Is he a created being? Did he become divine? But now with Sibelius and with modalism, we're bringing in all three persons of the triune Godhead. Sibelius and his thoughts affect the way we understand Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. So we're really ramping up the conversation to include the entirety of the triune Godhead here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we really are. And, you know, when we think about modalism, it's true that it's we're sort of progressing beyond just Christological heresy. But, uh, you know, as I was doing my research and thinking about this, it became obvious to me that the early Christians sort of drifted into modalistic thought uh, primarily because they were taking seriously the claim that the apostles made that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he was God in flesh. Mm. And, uh, you know, coming out of a Jewish religious environment that, that emphasized the oneness of God, the, you know, exclusive monotheism that we see um, in the Old Testament, they're trying to do justice to the fact that God, as he has revealed himself, is one, and yet Jesus Christ is God. They're trying to figure out how the, the fatherly God of the Old Testament relates to this man who is God in flesh and, and known as the Son of God. How can there be these two persons and they both be God? And so I, I think that that's, you know, as I was thinking about it, that, that became to me sort of a helpful way of sort of entering the discussion was to really try to understand how these early modalists um, were trying to do justice to both strands of thought contained in the Bible. That's an excellent point, Brad, and I just want to underline it, the newness of this revelation in Christ and the difficulties it threw up for a rigidly monotheistic religion to then make sense of this new revelation. It helps me to imagine Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus persecuting the church and then is blinded by a light. And his question, uh, if, if you remember in Acts 9, is, Who are you, Lord? Mm-hmm. And the revelation is that I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then if you look at Paul's letters, which you know so much New Testament theology is traced back to, Lord, kurios, the Greek word, which is how Yahweh or Adonai is translated in the Septuagint, is used almost exclusively for Jesus in, in mm-hmm. Paul's letters because he met him and he asked a direct question, who are you, Lord? And he, the answer was Jesus. And so you think of the mental reshuffling that would have to take place for Paul's conversion to now say this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema, mm-hmm. you know, the great yeah, unifying right. confession of of Israel now has greater content than Moses received when Moses asked for God's name. Um, there's an even greater content to it to n- now say that this Jesus is Lord um, that I'd been persecuting. And so I think it helps give us some sympathy for certain fathers and early Christians that weren't necessarily bad people or trying to cause division or damn others, but were trying to work this out as then the Christian faith, you know, expanded and began to mingle with Greek philosophy mm. and, you know, in the in the Hellenistic world, as well as do justice to the fact that there were going to need to be now new manners for expressing God's nature. And all of a sudden we are realizing the richness to the divine being is expressed in three persons. You know, you had this plural richness to God in the Old Testament, you know, let us make man in our image and, yeah. uh, you know, the plural Elohim and mm-hmm. um, the heavenly council and some things like that. And um, even I think the the Hebrew word akad for one is like a cluster of grapes. It's not right. a solitary um, item, 
but a but a oneness. And so this this uh, kind of rich diversity and plural richness to God's name and to God is now being filled out with this progressive revelation. And um, so I just appreciate you saying, you know, this revelation of Christ as Lord is extremely significant. Obviously, it's the centerpiece of of Christianity, and then needs to be fleshed out and manifested in language that we can confess and pray and believe. And eventually that language gets formalized and codified to, unless one believes this, he cannot be saved Yeah, in the creed. So but I didn't mean to run off the rails there. I just wanted to underscore the importance of that. And Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, like, like you're, like you're saying, I think that is uh, fundamental to understand how this developed. And, and maybe now I, this is a, simple definition of modalism but it might be helpful to uh, to lay it out um if y'all are ready for it yeah no please do because we've we've mentioned sibelius we've mentioned modalism we've mentioned oneness pentecostalism i think it'd be helpful for the listeners to what how are all these things what, related what, what are, are we talking about, about? Yeah, yeah, what is yeah. this and we are sitting down we're ready for this yeah we're sitting okay down. <laughs> cool all right this is just kind of how i define it modalism as a uh, as a theological system argues that the scriptures so emphasize god's unity or his oneness that the persons of God that we see in the Bible, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, must be identified not as co-eternal, simultaneously existing persons, but rather as distinct modes of being of one God that exist in distinct periods of time. So the way we often see it, and the way uh, David Wilhite uh, explains it in his book, is that the Father— is God as he presents himself in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, we see this Father God of the Old Testament taking on flesh and presenting himself as Jesus, the Son of God. And then after the Ascension and post-Pentecost, this one God presents himself as the Spirit. But the Father, Son, and Spirit aren't presenting themselves simultaneously. Rather, they're just distinct modes of being of this one God. Uh, what do you guys think? Anything we could uh, use to clarify that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there's a few ways to illustrate that. But one one thing that pops into my mind is if you were living during the day of Christ and you saw him walking on the streets uh, and you were transported to the heavenly throne room, the question would be, who's sitting there? Crickets. Yeah. There is no one. Right. The angels are guarding the throne. The Father has descended into the sun, and he is currently spending 33 years on earth, but he will return soon. Uh, and so I, that's an odd thought to have if you have grown up in an orthodox Trinitarian type of environment, but really that might be a good way to think about modalism. There was a absence of the Father in heaven while the Son was on earth. And yeah. then what about in the church ages? That's a great point. As what happens after that? The Spirit is filling the church is that throne room still empty then and um, yeah we we can obviously think of reasons why even now like texts probably from scripture that that would help us uh argue against this view but maybe it's helpful uh to think about the texts modalists would use to argue for the view and they're they're really two and they're they come from the gospel of john and one is where jesus disciples ask him if they can see the father and jesus looks at them and says Listen, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. That on its own seems to identify one for one Jesus and the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The other one is when Jesus says that I and the Father are one. 
So he, he seems to, with his own mouth, identify himself as the father. And uh, so, you know, those two texts he, see, would seem to, to do what the modalists say they do, to uh, make Jesus the father in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned the Shema earlier, uh, but the central identifying creed of Judaism emphasizes the oneness of God over and against the polytheistic cultures that they were, you know, enmeshed in and sadly at times disobediently intermarrying or worshiping on their high places. And so, um, you know, the creed that the Abraham and his sons were circumcised to and had to die for was that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's such a strong move in that direction, especially in the context, the cultural context of polytheism, where you had a God of this and a God of that. And, you know, you, if you wanted your crops or to be fertile or your wife, for that matter, you needed to offer, you know, mm-hmm. sacrifices in the right way to the right God who was over that local area of village life. Um, you know, it's such a strong move in the other direction, distinguishing move that you all of that inertia is built up and one could understand how um, it would be difficult to move away from that or pers- in at least be perceived to move away from that because the threat of tritheism is um, right there. Yeah. I, I think, though, behind that and what helps us in move in the right direction is that you alluded to this earlier, that word echad, which is in the Shema, here is real, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The oneness is echad. The way that you see that word used all the way back in Genesis hints at a type of plurality, one that we don't understand, surely, but yeah. a plurality nonetheless. So yeah. the husband and the wife, we read in Genesis, leave their parents and the two become one flesh, echad. Bless you. They aren't like ontologically put into a divine microwave, melted together and come out as literally one person, right? So when you're reading something like Jesus's prayer in John 17, that yeah. he would desire that we would be one yeah, as he and the Father are one. I can't help but think that concept of Echad, the Shema, isn't the backdrop behind that prayer that we have to be very careful and, and remember there is a mysterious plurality that exists behind it uh, regardless of whether or not we can understand that. Yeah, yeah. well, Absolutely. I mean, even, even Jesus' prayer, that they would be one, sort of leads us to the strength. If, if we assume that, okay, Jesus' prayer, that they would be one as he and the Father are one, if we assume that, you know, taking the modalistic view, that that means that Jesus and the Father are identical and cease to be distinct persons, then is he praying that we cease to be distinct persons and somehow meld together into one giant disciple co- consciousness? You know, obviously not. Uh, there is some sort of uh, mysterious thing at work there. There's a unity mm-hmm. um, in diversity and distinction. No, that's abs- absolutely right. And perhaps will be confusing for listeners because there'll be times where we're speaking where we're trying to say, here's how a modalist could argue this, but it's not necessarily our understanding of Scripture, what where we think Scripture leads. And so um, you're asking the question about oneness, you know, and what Scriptures might support that. And so, you know. Those statements we're making are, well, here's here's how you could go there. Or here's how yeah. this might make more sense. Mm-hmm. But obviously, there's a there's a richness, as, as I talked about earlier, and Kyle just mentioned to the to the Old Testament revelation of God's nature 
and a plural diversity there. It's not fleshed out in three persons, fleshed, pun intended, you know, the way you see it after the incarnation. Um, that revelation has yet to come. Golf clapped for that pun. No, um, I wasn't going to say. Um, you can't hear it, but I but, slow clapped for that pun. Nice. But it's not... It, we don't come as Christians, and Jesus didn't come and say, all right, everything you've been taught about God, you need to scrap that because this it's wrong. You know, it's not Marcionism. You know, it's not saying, okay, that that's not really how it is. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, Actually. Jesus wasn't like, you've heard it yeah, said, and yeah. then says the Shema, but right. I tell you. Right, right, right. right. Um, so it's not that Christianity doesn't, scraps everything that has come before and then the new testament supersedes it in in that sense it's a fulfillment it's a building upon it's a um you know a progressive revealing of of god which you which yeah it there's continuity there you know well and and in that we see clear texts where uh the the distinct persons are presented simultaneously right you know and and we think primarily of the baptism scene where Jesus enters the water and comes up, and the heavens open, and the Father says, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends onto Jesus in the form of a dove. So you have three, the three persons of the Godhead uh, there in one scene together at the same time. You know, uh, David Wilhite uh, calls modalism uh, the Clark Kent view of, of Jesus. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know. Yeah, and and that, you know, Clark Kent shows up to his job. I think he, he's a reporter, right? Yes, at yes. the Daily Planet. Yeah, all, Daily all Planet the superheroes. All the superheroes have to do with like journalism, you know, so uh but anyway, yeah, Clark Kent shows up with his glasses and nerd suit. Kyle's going to have to stop you right there. He's <laughs> mystified by your ignorance of the comic the comic oh, book world. I'm sorry, crap. I can't take comic books. <laughs> Closest like I get to like comic book movies is the Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Sherlock movies. Yeah, you couldn't be so. further away from Kyle and, and sensibility, I think, at this yeah. point, our, or aesthetic our, judgment. Our, our next series is going to be on <laughs> comics. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the comic Christ. That's instead right. Of comic. Modern okay. modern mythology. I, I will tell yeah. you, there is actually lots of. I don't know if there's lots of work, but there's some notable studies on Christ figures in comics, and several people at the University of St. Andrews were actually doing PhD that dissertations. Sounds wonderful. On, yes, on uh, on comics and Christian themes. Anyway, we we uh, we have uh, detoured a little. Not bit. to apologize for it or to vilify it. It's <laughs> back, just happening. Yeah. Back to Clark Kent. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Yeah, see, so you never see Jesus and the Father in the same phone booth at the same yeah, time. Yeah, right. exactly, exactly. Clark Clark Kent disappears, and out out jumps Superman. You know, uh, he could come up with a better name, the Superman. You know, but uh, at the end of the day, that you never see Clark Kent and Superman at the same time. And uh, for the modalist view to work, uh, you would have to do away with the clear presentation in Scripture of Jesus and the Father simultaneously. I mean, another one um, where we hear the Father's voice is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yep. I mean, we have just we have several texts that present two persons, at least, of the Godhead at the same time, and, uh, you know, they can't be identified as one and the same. <laughs> yeah. right. what, is, what does Jesus mean in John 14 when he says, the Father is greater than I? Yeah. Yeah, you have every incident where Christ is praying on earth. Um, yep climactically in Gethsemane 
the night before he's killed. Um, yeah, who's he praying to? Right. I think that's another great point. Yeah, there's much difficulty, I think, with that view. Um, I think the theater analogy is helpful if, if listeners are trying to conceptualize again of modalism. Um, if you imagined uh, all of uh, salvation history as a three-act play, and during act one, uh, God comes onto the stage and he's wearing the mask of the Father, and then you have intermission, and there's act two, the incarnation, and he comes onto the stage and he's wearing the mask of the Son, and then you have act three, the age of the church, or the last, the last days, and he comes out in the mask of the Spirit. You know, you have a single actor portraying these three personae for the audience, and not three in one, but you know, separately. Yeah. So aside from interpretation of Scripture, what's at stake in adopting modalism? Like, who cares? So what? Why, yeah. not, why not just become modalist? Because, frankly, when we're thinking about the Trinity, this is a pretty easy way to describe it, at least as far as our limited understanding of who God is. Yeah. We... we I'm sorry to interject again. We were we were speaking just before we began recording, and um, this is this is a very common. And I'd, I'd be interested, Brad, to hear some more about your background, maybe in your experience, because you yeah. have personal experience with it. But this is one of the more common heresies, uh, Trinitarian heresies, that is in currency today. And uh, I I think there are perhaps several reasons for it. Kyle's hinting at one there. It it evacuates some of the mystery mm-hmm. um, of Trinitarian relations, which is, you know, s- somewhat of a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. You have to be very cautious with the language you use when you describe the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and um, you know the language of person and the language of nature and essence, and you know these are divisive issues. So it's makes sense to people. Modalism, you know, I can conceive of that i don't have to deal with the three and oneness um paradox and as a result it has a lot of traction i think with people a lot of my students frankly they're it seems to be almost their default view if they're trying to make sense of the trinity for the first time or they're now being asked to write about their understanding of the trinity and interpretation of the trinity in scripture um if they haven't thought about it before it's almost as if the language of modalism is on the tip of their tongue um, as their way of conceiving of mm. how that could be so. So Yeah. But yeah, what's, I, what's your I, experience? Well, no, I think that's true. I mean, we were talking about the way that even our analogies um, of describing the Trinity sort of lend themselves toward a modalistic view of God. Um, one of the chief ones being uh, the analogy of ice, liquid water and vapor uh, to try to describe the three persons of the Godhead. And, you know, well, I guess we should applaud the person who seeks to defend the, the Trinity um, using ice, water and vapor is modalism, because uh, if you have six ounces of water, it can't simultaneously exist as ice, liquid and vapor. It, it's one at a time. Um, so I think that you're exactly right. I think that in practical, you know, experience, modalism's easy because of the analogies we use. Uh, we find ourselves drifting into modalistic expression in our prayers. You know, we may begin by saying "Our Father in Heaven," but you know, just a few lines into our prayer, we say "Thank you for dying on the cross and saving us from our sins." You mm-hmm. know, and we began by addressing the Father, um, and then we thank the Father for dying on the cross or 
uh, what's, what's worse, I saw a tweet one time that literally was a, was a Christmas tweet, and it said, happy birthday, father, like is the hashtag, you know, and uh, which is, is careless probably on one level, but on another, it's just confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, and, and somewhere along the way, um, churches, you know, we, we fail our people when we don't clearly, uh, explain this and give them, uh, words to express their belief, which obviously, uh, the listener hasn't heard our first series here on So What about, um, creeds. Creeds give us language that is tried and true and has been used in the church to express true belief. We don't have to reach for newfangled analogies. Um, the creeds give us a rich vocabulary to explain what we believe about God. So what? What's the big deal with modalism? It seems like a much easier way to understand the Trinity anyway. Why not adopt it? Well, certainly, when thinking about modalism, we must give Sibelius and his followers the benefit of the doubt. Surely, they were attempting to maintain the strict monotheism of the Shema while reconciling the revelation of God's three-in-oneness expressed through the incarnation of the Son of God and the sending of the Holy Spirit to the Church. While modalism seems like an easy and understandable way to describe the Trinity, it is certainly not the way God is described in Scripture. As the Genesis creation account, Christ's baptism, and Christ's transfiguration all demonstrate, among other places, God exists in three distinct persons, yet remains one, or Hebrew echad, God. Perhaps more than any other heresy, modalism is the easiest to unintentionally slip into when thinking or praying to God. While God the Son died on the cross, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit did not. And yet, even that statement alone deserves a better, more fuller explanation concerning the death of God the Son. So, alas, separating the persons of the Trinity remains a tricky, albeit important, exercise for Christians when thinking theologically. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue our conversation about modalism in part two of this episode.